0: Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is Military Murder, a show where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. Hope you didn't have to wait too long to get part two of the Andrew Erdialis story. Just a quick reminder that I am offering two free months of the fan club for those who sign up for the year. This deal ends on December 31st, so make sure you hurry. But either way, you can still sign up month to month. You get tons of bonus content, stickers and a podcast challenge coin. So for those of you who want extra content, visit patreon.com militarymurder military murder to join today. Last time I left off telling you the story of Jennifer S. Benson's survival and how no one believed her. Heck, she hardly believed herself. So let's pick up from the moment that Alice sped off after she was picked up in the desert by two Marines. Join me today as I bring you the conclusion of the story of serial killer Andrew Alice. Now, let's dig in. My sources for this episode include an episode of Inside Evil, Confessions of a Serial Killer, and an A&E episode of I Survived. I also used articles in the LA Times, People, and Heavy.com. But the most heavily sourced documents that I used to inform this story were a 2007 Illinois Supreme Court opinion and an Illinois state's opposition brief opposing clemency. You heard the trigger warning last time, but here it is again. This episode contains discussions of rape, sodomy, torture and murder. Listener discretion is advised. In 1992, when Jennifer S. Benson made her escape in California, You may recall that Alice was only in town visiting. Well, when he kidnapped Jennifer, he was in a rental car. As soon as Jennifer escaped, he beelined to the airport, dropped off his rental car and returned to Chicago. The fact that one of Alice's victims survived must have spooked him, I guess a little bit, causing him to lay low for a few more years. But then with the passage of time, that feeling that someone was looking for him went away. And in March of 1995, while vacationing in California, Erdie Alice struck again. Now, you may be wondering who the hell was Erty Alice vacationing with in California all these times. He's always described as a loner in everything that I read. And to be honest, I have been unable to find that answer for you. And trust me, I have looked. Maybe he was just going out there by himself, which I'm assuming that's what he did. Well, he returned to the area in California where he had picked up Tammy and Julie. This time he picked up Denise Maney. She was a sex worker and she got into his car and he drove her to the desert. There he asked Denise to do a little dance. Then he asked for oral sex. But after a while, he, quote, got tired of that, end quote. And that's when he grabbed her by the hair, tied her hands behind her back, and then he ordered her to perform oral sex on him again. And she obeyed. But after he, quote, wasn't feeling satisfied, end quote, he turned her over and shoved her into the ground. And then he began to sodomize her with his fingers. Erty Alice described this assault very haphazardly, like a walk in the park. When he was tired of sodomizing her, he walked her toward the desert, stuck the gun in her mouth and pulled the trigger. Although when he talks about what he did, he minimizes the pulling the trigger part. During his confession, he said he put the gun in her mouth and then, quote, it went off, end quote. He felt nothing. As he walked away, he heard her gurgling, but he still got into his car and started driving. Then as he drove, he got angry. So he went back to where Denise lay and he took out a knife. As he told the police what he did to Denise, he transitioned from saying I and we. And he said, quote, we just started stabbing for some reason. Just on the body several times in the chest, maybe stomach. I remember I made a slashing motion by the throat, but then we went back to the car, end quote. Then he grabbed her clothes, he threw them along the road and buried her underwear and her lingerie. After Alice killed Denise, he must have felt that living a double life in California was just too much because he'd never kill there again. His new killing field became his own backyard. Not literally, just figuratively. During the winter of 1995 and 1996, Erdie Alice met Laura Lori Ulocki. She was a sex worker and he had picked her up several times. On two occasions, he picked her up and they went to Wolf Lake, where they had sex in a sleeping bag in his truck. On April 13, 1996, Erdie Alice called Laura from a payphone on the corner of Michigan Avenue and Calumet Avenue in Hammond, Indiana. She agreed to meet him at around 10 p.m. Now, I imagine that when she was meeting him, she had zero fears since she had done this before. Again, they were heading to Wolf Lake, but something was different this time. On the way to Wolf Lake, they began to argue about something. Erdy Alice grabbed his loaded 38 caliber revolver, which he kept in his car. And according to him, he was, quote, showing it to her, end quote, when it went off and blew a hole in the roof. This was not a fun experience, and Laura was like, oh, hell no. Erdialis claimed that Laura then grabbed at the gun. While she was at it, she broke his left index finger in the process as they fought for the gun. Then she jumped out of the truck and ran like hell. He followed her in his car, and he shot her. He then got out of the car, took her clothes off, and threw her into Wolf Lake. He then discarded her clothes on the side of the road on his way back to Chicago. And after killing Laura, he wouldn't wait long before striking again. Heck, now that he had settled on killing close to home, he needed less prep time for his killings. Erty Alice knew Cassandra Quorum for two years. On July 13th, 1996, according to Erty Alice, he met her in a Hammond, Indiana bar. They ended up leaving together and they headed towards Wolf Lake, which was only 15 minutes away on the Illinois side. Once they got to Wolf Lake, they had sex. And after they had sex, they got into an argument about something. The funny thing is that during his confessions, Erdialis never told police why he got into these arguments with these ladies. It was always just an argument about something. During this argument with Cassandra, Erdialis got very angry and he then punched and slapped Cassandra on her face. And that's when Cassandra's instinct kicked in and she began to fight for her life. As she fought back, Alice yanked her arms behind her back And forcefully put handcuffs on her. Cassandra knew she was in danger. And she felt helpless. And she began to appease Alice. He then bound her feet. Duct taped her mouth. And lay her head across his lap. So that outsiders couldn't see her. And then he began to drive. He drove south down I-55. And he drove and drove and drove. And he drove for over an hour. Then he went over a bridge. And stopped at a little park. He exited the car with Cassandra, and he was already holding his gun. Cassandra walked towards the back of the truck and turned to Alice as if to say something. But before she could say anything, he aimed the gun and shot her once. Alice then went inside the truck to grab his knife, and he stabbed her multiple times, allegedly because he was still mad at her because, I guess, she bit him during the earlier altercation. Erdie Alice then carried her now naked body to the bridge and threw her into the Vermilion River. When asked what he felt when he did that, he responded that, quote, he didn't feel anything for Casey. She was just a whore, end quote. Later, he added that he was, quote, trained to kill in the Marine Corps, end quote. He then drove home and threw her clothes out the window as he drove. Ertie Alice's last two kills took place within three months of each other. One in April of 96 and the other in late July of 96. His next victim would be only two weeks after he killed Casey. In the summer of 96, Ernie Alice met Lynn Huber. She was a sex worker in Chicago and they had sex a few times. But then one day he saw Lynn walking alone with a large bag of clothes. He asked her if she needed a ride and she said yes. He took her to an alley to have sex. But according to him, she was acting ditzy. So when she tried to get out of the car, he took out his gun and indiscriminately shot her in the head. He then drove her to Wolf Lake where he then removed her clothes. But while he was removing her clothes, he hurt himself and that made him really mad. This caused so much rage inside of him that even though she was already dead, he grabbed his knife and proceeded to stab Lynn in the back and then shot her again. He then dumped her body in Wolf Lake. And then he discarded the clothes that she had been wearing along the road. And remember that bag she had been carrying when he saw her walking? Well, he donated it to Salvation Army, opining that she wouldn't be needing those anymore. This brings us back to the beginning of the story. When Erdie Alice was arrested in April of 1997, 11 years after he murdered his first victim, Robin Branley. Most of the information I share with you up until this point is according to Erdie Alice. But of course, there was also Jennifer S. Benson, the only survivor that we are aware of. Well, she now speaks about her experience surviving a serial killer. She's even written a book titled The Girl in the Treehouse. When Erdie Alice was initially arrested, He spoke to the Chicago detectives about the murders in Illinois, and then he voluntarily told them, yeah, you might want to contact your counterparts in California because this wasn't my first rodeo. He then gave the name of five women in California, and he also gave the name of the one that got away. But the only thing he knew about her was that her name was Jennifer. Chicago got with California and a detective by the name of John Booth. He was the Palm Springs detective. And when John Booth hears everything, he can't believe his ears. So within an hour of learning about Erdie Alice, Booth jumped on an airplane to Chicago. And sure enough, Erdie Alice confessed to everything. But the odd thing is that Erdie Alice remembered every single detail from memory. He remembered what the victims wore, how they looked when he left. He knows details only the real killer would know. In fact, the detectives who interviewed him said they got chills down their spines as they heard Alice speak so callously about the women he killed. After confessing to all eight of the murders and the attempt on Jennifer S. Benson, Alice told the detective, quote, I'm kind of glad in a way that you caught me. I was starting to get the urge again, end quote. And remember, initially Alice went years between killings, but his last three took place within a four-month time span. In 1997, when police called Jennifer S. Benson, they asked her something like, have you filed a report with the police? And she was not about to mention that mess from a few years ago because, remember, she was still thinking she might have made the entire story up. Jennifer went down to the station and they asked her, hey, remember a few years ago when you said that this thing happened to you in the desert? And as they spoke, Jennifer's eyes were bugging out of her head. She was wondering if she was on an episode of Ashton Kutcher's Punked. Well, you know, not really, because that show first aired in 2003. But, you know, you get the picture. So they ask her if she might remember the man's face if she saw a picture of him. And she was like, yes, 100 percent. So they line up several pictures in front of her of different men. And her eyes immediately go to Andrew Erdialis's picture. The detectives are like, ma'am, ma'am, you have to look at all of them. And she's like, oh, hell, I sure don't. Because I know this is the man right here without a shadow of a doubt. And boom, right there in that moment, five years after her abduction, rape and attempted murder, Jennifer S. Benson felt vindicated. Not that she would ever wish this upon anyone, but she knew she wasn't crazy. But then detectives told her something that felt like a gut punch. They told her that the man who attacked her Was a serial killer and she was the only known survivor. Throughout the years since then, Jennifer has told various news outlets about her story. She's talked on talk shows and true crime TV shows. And like I said, she wrote a book and she talks about the survivor's guilt that she has felt. What was so special about her that she survived? But with time and the ensuing courtroom appearances, Jennifer S. Benson realized that she survived to give the other eight women a voice. Without her, no one would truly be able to put into words what those ladies went through. After news broke that Erdie Alice had been arrested in Chicago and was likely a serial killer, well, of course, his childhood neighborhood of Slag Valley was swarmed with reporters wanting to get the scoop. Now, I read an article in the L.A. Times that caught up with some people from Erdie Alice's neighborhood. Apparently, Erdie Alice dated a girl named Kathy back in the day. They were like teenagers. And after getting into a big argument, Erdie Alice tried to choke her. Now, clearly, the young girl was freaked out and she wanted nothing to do with him. So watching him on the news all those years later after he allegedly killed eight women, it just brought back memories. Another old neighborhood friend recalled that Erdie Alice loved to hide behind bushes and he loved to scare neighborhood kids as they passed. They said Erdie Alice was always strange, but that he was even stranger when he returned from the Marines. So let's talk about the ensuing trials. There were eight murders and one attempted murder. Three murders took place in Illinois, which is where he was being held in jail because that's where he was arrested. And there were five murders and an attempted murder that took place in California. Illinois would be the first to try Erty Alice, but they decided to play it safe and try him for two murders first. The murders that took place at Wolf Lake, the murders of Lynn Huber and Laura Ulaki. Then they would pursue a separate trial for the murder of Cassandra Coram. Remember, she was the one who was murdered at Vermilion Lake. Now, this was a strategic move in case anything went sideways with the first trial. They could always fall back on a second trial. Now, a lot of you are thinking double jeopardy. Blah, blah. This is not double jeopardy. It's totally legit. The trial for the murders of Lynn Huber and Laura Ulaki lasted from April 8th through May 23rd, 2002. At this trial, Erdi Alice pled not guilty by reason of insanity. But Erdi Alice was found to be very much sane. And ultimately, he was convicted of first-degree murder. His sentencing hearing lasted a week, and he was sentenced to death in the state of Illinois. All of the families felt that this was the proper sentence for this monster. But we all know that the death penalty is a hot topic. And no kidding, just a few months after Erdie Alice was sentenced to death, well, on January 10, 2003, then-Governor George Ryan commuted Alice's death sentence to life without parole. In fact, George Ryan commuted all death penalty inmates, and that was 167 death penalty cases to be exact. Of course, this was not the correct answer for those involved in the Alice case, and he was already pending charges for the murder of Cassandra Coram. And after his first death sentence was commuted, they went to trial for Casey's murder. That trial began in 2004. During this trial, a lot goes on that is documented in the Illinois Supreme Court's opinion. So I'm going to dive into that trial just a little bit more than I do in the others. That trial began in 2004. Mind you, he was already a convicted murderer and had been spared the death penalty. But for this trial, they were again pursuing the death penalty. And it's during this trial the Erdie Alice shows kind of his true colors in the courtroom. Before trial, the judge determined that Erdie Alice needed to be secured with shackles to the ground. And so the tensions were a little bit high and elevated. Trial was just about to begin and they were starting on jury selection. The judge, Judge Frobisch, was in his chambers when a situation occurred in the courtroom. And it turns out that Erdie Alice decided he was going to act a fool. So, what happened? Erdie Alice was sitting at the defense table and he turned to the audience where he was talking to a civilian in the courtroom. Mind you, there was no court in session at the time. One of the guards told Erdie Alice that he couldn't speak to this woman since she wasn't a member of his defense team. And Erdie Alice was but her. At that point, he slammed his water cup down on the defense table and threw a little hissy fit, stating, quote, I don't give a damn, end quote. As he slapped his water cup on the table, it sent water everywhere. And then he either flipped the table or I don't know what happened, but the guards jumped into action. And according to court documents, like I said, the defense table was flipped over and Alice was dropped to the ground and handcuffed. Judge Frubbish, of course, cannot allow this nonsense in his courtroom, and he proceeded to have a very stern chat with Erdialis. Alice. And not wanting to take any chances, the judge ordered Erdialis's Alice's left hand be shackled under the table. His feet were already shackled to an eyeball on the floor, and so all of this was under the table so as to not, you know, be something that the jurors saw. In addition to this precaution. The judge ordered Erdialis could not have any writing utensils, but his defense attorney thought Erdialis should get an inch pencil to take notes. And to be honest, I had never heard about an inch pencil until I read the opinion in this case. But apparently when you have a very dangerous defendant, they can be a danger to their very own attorney. So they are given inch pencils, which I'm assuming is a pencil that isn't very long. As to not be used as a weapon in court. And that was something that Erdi Alice's attorney asked he have access to. Initially, at this trial, which is his trial for Casey's murder, Erdie Alice pled not guilty. But on April 23rd, 2004, Erdie Alice and his defense decided they didn't want to take any chances and they threw a wrench in the prosecution's case. Erdi Alice changed his plea from not guilty to guilty but mentally ill an action that Erdie Alice would later argue was not his idea now just a quick mention that during such a plea of guilty but mentally ill the judge will hear all of the evidence the prosecution still has the burden of proving the case beyond a reasonable doubt but this time the defense also has a burden of proving a mental illness now the judge will then decide one if the prosecution met their burden and then two whether the defense met their burden in this case The judge determined that the prosecution established the elements necessary to prove Erdialis murdered Cassandra. For the guilty but mentally ill part, the defense called three witnesses. During the defense's case, a defense psychiatrist by the name of Dr. Terry Killian testified that, in his professional opinion, Erdialis was legally sane but mentally ill at the time of the murder. He further diagnosed Erdialis with post traumatic stress disorder. Bipolar Mood Disorder, Panic Disorder with Agoraphobia, OCD, Disassociative Disorder, Tourette's Personality Disorder, and Mild Neurological Impairment. During his testimony, Dr. Killian said that the worst of Erdialis' diagnosis was disassociation, which is like multiple personalities, which is how it was described in the Supreme Court Opinion. Dr. Killian didn't believe Erdi Alice was acting or fiending illness, but he said it was possible since he was aware that Erdi Alice read a book about the insanity defense called, quote, Guilty but Mentally Ill, end quote. Another doctor, Dr. Daniel Cuneo, a psychologist, stated that Erdi Alice had a, quote, substantial disorder of thought, mood, and behavior which impacted, end quote, Erdi Alice's judgment. Dr. Cuneo also diagnosed Erdialis with post-traumatic stress disorder, bipolar disorder, Tourette's syndrome, OCD, personality disorder, mild neurological impairment, and a history of sexually transmitted diseases. This doctor, however, believed that post-traumatic stress disorder was Erdialis' most significant disorder. Of Erdialis' personality disorder, Dr. Cuneo told the court that Erdialis had different names for his personalities. And get this, they were Eric, Andy and Andrew. But even with all of these diagnoses, both Dr. Kunell and Dr. Killian opined that Alice knew what he was doing when he was committing the murder of Cassandra, but they just said he was impaired. And then there was a discussion of Alice's explosive anger. But listen, the prosecutor was not buying any of what the defense experts were saying Was it a personality disorder? Was it his explosive anger? The prosecutor didn't believe for a single minute that Erdialis' explosive anger caused him to kill Cassandra. In fact, in her case, out of all of them, he had actually waited over an hour to kill her. Do you remember in her case, he attacked her at Wolf Lake, but then he drove over 100 miles where he then killed her and dumped her body in the Vermilion River and the prosecution, of course, they had their own string of experts who testified. Dr. Merikangas, a psychiatrist, disagreed with Dr. Kunell and Dr. Killian. He didn't believe that Erdialis had PTSD or disassociative personality disorder at all. When they did a brain scan of Erdialis back in 2002, it showed atrophy, which Dr. Merikangas believed was a result of improper treatment of syphilis. Well, this doctor believed that Alice was stressed by sexual situations where he was belittled or couldn't perform. Then there was another doctor, Dr. Willer from the VA. She testified that from 91 to 96, Alice visited her at the VA hospital. She was a psychologist. She said she thought he had mild depression and avoidant personality disorder. There was a doctor who said Alice was a sexual sadist which means a person who endures a pattern of sexual excitement or desire involving the infliction of pain or the humiliation of others. Honestly, when the judge returned to his chambers to deliberate, it was really about which expert did he find more credible? The judge ultimately determined that the defense witnesses didn't even agree on their diagnosis, and the judge felt that the defense failed to explain, quote, How the defendant was able to function in society during his seven years in the Marine Corps or afterwards as a security guard while suffering from the diagnosed illnesses, end quote. The trial judge deliberated and found that the prosecution met their burden to find that Erdialis committed first degree murder. However, in considering the defense of guilty but mentally ill, the judge found that Erdie Alice's defense team did not meet their burden to prove that he was suffering from anything at the time of the murder. And with that, Erdie Alice was found guilty of first degree murder. Just straight guilty. They then moved on to sentencing, and remember, this was a capital case, so the jury had to decide death penalty or life. During sentencing, the jury got to hear from many of the same experts that testified during the case in chief. The prosecution harped on the one piece that tied all of the experts' testimony Erdi Alice hated women. Even when he was being evaluated and was asked to complete some sentences, his responses showed that Erdi Alice had no respect for women at all. And Erdi Alice would often get mad when he was criticized. He honestly believed everyone else was the problem, not him. During the sentencing portion of Cassandra's case, her mom, Sherry Alsala, read her victim impact statement. She talked about the effect of Cassandra's murder on her mom, her sister and Casey's young son. Ultimately, in the state of Illinois, Erdi Alice was sentenced to death again. Once Erdi Alice was on Illinois death row again, The families of the victims in California were, I guess you can say, kind of content with the verdicts. While everyone would like their day in court to get justice for their family members, the California prosecutors have to consider if it would be worth extradition and everything that comes along with the death penalty case. And so the families didn't fight. But of course, with any death penalty case, there are appeals and appeals and appeals and you never really know. Well, it's not surprising to learn that Erdialis applied for clemency. When he was requesting clemency for his first trial for the murders of Lynn and Laura, this mofo, no kidding, attached his DD-214 to the clemency request, you know, because he got an honorable discharge. But the state, in its clemency opposition brief, destroyed this by saying, quote, to maintain that Alice’s service was honorable, is an affront to all those who have honorably served our country. To attach his Certificate of Release as Exhibit A is the height of hypocrisy. Alice attaches his honorable discharge in a veiled attempt to ride the current favorable winds of patriotism. Make no mistake about it, Alice's conduct while in the Marine Corps was not honorable. While wearing the uniform of the United States Marine Corps, And after taking an oath to protect this great nation from all enemies, foreign and domestic, he was stalking the nearby countryside and killing the very citizens he swore to protect. His acts are deplorable and despicable. He's a disgrace to the Marine Corps. He long ago forfeited his right to be counted among the few and the proud, end quote. And with that, they dropped the mic. Erdialis did not get clemency. But listen, in 2011, Illinois did a thing that would alter the history of this case forever. In March of 2011, Illinois Governor Pat Quinn abolished the death penalty and commuted the sentences of 15 inmates remaining on death row. One of those inmates being none other than Andrew Erdialis. All of the families of the Illinois victims were pissed, but so were the families of Erdi Alice's victims in California. So, within a week of Erdi Alice's commuted sentence, California prosecutors moved to extradite. Mind you, I failed to mention this earlier, but California had already indicted Erdi Alice on the five California murders and the attempted murder back in 2009. Alice would eventually be extradited to California to stand trial for the murders of Robin Branley, Julie McGee, Mary Ann Wells, Tammy Irwin and Denise Maney and the attempted murder of Jennifer S. Benson. That trial began in 2018, three decades since his first murder. It's not surprising to learn that he was convicted on all counts. And listen, he was facing the death penalty in the state of California after Erty Alice’s California conviction. But before his sentence was announced, he agreed to speak to CNN's now disgraced anchor Chris Cuomo for his show called Inside Evil with Chris Cuomo. During his interview for the show, Erty Alice told Cuomo that he did not agree with his defense attorney's strategy to plead insanity or mentally ill in Illinois. Erdy Alice truly did not believe he was insane and he told Cuomo, quote, I was in the Marine Corps, so I had to be pretty sane, wouldn't you say, end quote. Erty Alice was pretty evasive for most of this interview, not wanting to answer questions because according to him, he wanted to preserve issues for appeal. Also not loving the name of Cuomo's show, Inside Evil. He was just really doing some weird stuff during that interview. From watching this interview, you can tell that Ertialis' identity revolves around his time in the military because he always retreats back to his answer. Well, I was in the Marines, so I must be fill in the blank, sane, smart, intelligent, whatever. When Cuomo asked Ertialis if he had a normal range of emotions, Ertialis responded with, quote, I should. I believe so. I did seven years in the Marine Corps as a radio operator. I'm a Desert Storm veteran, end quote. And at one point he said, quote, I was always trained. We were always trained to kill in boot camp, end quote. The entire interview was Erty Alice not answering questions and retreating to his time in the military. So during the California sentencing hearing, it was a very emotional moment for the victims' families. They had waited close to three decades to confront their loved one's killer. For at least a decade, many had no answers as to what happened to their loved ones. And while many of the California victims were sex workers at the time of their death, they were much more than that. They were daughters, mothers. They were loved by many, yet discarded like trash. And many felt that they had been forgotten. They feared that they would never get justice. Tammy Irwin's family spoke out. Remember, she was only 18 years old at the time of her murder. Her family spoke about how this tragedy affected all of them. They felt like time froze in 1989 and they have not been able to live life since the moment they heard that Tammy had been murdered. Jennifer S. Benson, she was a superwoman. She made sure that she was present at all of Erdialis' trials, including the ones that took place in Illinois. During the California sentencing hearing, Jennifer bravely told Erdialis that she forgave him. She told the court and all of the victim's families that she wanted to continue to use the rest of her life to spread joy and empower women. She told them, quote, when I am weak, they are my angels, end quote. I am sure there was not one dry eye in the courtroom that day. On October 5, 2018, Orange County Superior Court Judge Greg Prickett handed down a sentence. Erdialis was sentenced to five consecutive death sentences. Erdialis, a nine-time convicted murderer, had received his eighth death sentence. 54-year-old Andrew Erdialis arrived at San Quentin State Prison on October 12, 2018. And that's where California death row sits. Three decades earlier, after a fight with a couple of Marines at Camp Pendleton, Andrew Erdialis killed his first victim that we know of. He sealed his fate at that point. It just took 30 years to catch up to him. At one point during all of the trials, Andrew Erdialis told his psychiatrist that his plan all along was to be a serial killer. He told her he was, quote, turned on by watching women suffer, end quote. Andrew Ordialis always thought he was the smartest guy in the room. Heck, he had escaped capture for a decade and he escaped the death penalty twice. He once told one of his doctors that it would be easy to, quote, fake an insanity defense, end quote. Well, I guess it wasn't that easy at all. He also told his doctor that he, quote, was not going to accept his fate, end quote. And guess what? That statement would be very true. Erdialis did not accept his fate. On November 5th, just two weeks after Erdialis arrived at death row, the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation put out a press release. It stated that on Friday, November 2nd, 2018, at 11.15 p.m., prison staff found Andrew Erdialis, 54, unresponsive in the Adjustment Center. They performed CPR, but he was pronounced dead at 12.06 a.m. on November 3rd. They were investigating his death, but it appeared to be a suicide. The crazy part is that the weekend that Erdialis committed suicide, a different death row inmate at San Quentin also committed suicide. His name was Viendro Govin, and Govin was on death row for a quadruple murder. And listen, that was the end of the road for the many trials of Andrew Erdialis. Many stated that if he was going to get out like that, he should have just saved everyone the pain and just gone that route many, many, many years ago. California District Attorney Tony Rakakis put it best in a press release issued after Erdialis's death. Quote, Erdialis was a monster who did not deserve to breathe the same air we all enjoy. He remained a callous coward until the end as he robbed the victims' families of the right to be present when the state put him to death, end quote. That's all she wrote. If you're interested in learning more about this case or just seeing it, check out a I Survived. Also check out Inside Evil where you get to watch Erdie Alice not answer any questions. If you want to keep hearing these cases, make sure you subscribe to the show by clicking the check mark or the plus wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow me on social media, on Instagram at Military Murder Podcast and on TikTok at Military Margot with a T. This show was created by Mama Margot Productions, produced in collaboration with all of my boot camp and higher fan club members. The music was created by Tie Ops. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of. So remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week, and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next week. Shh, let's work another podcast.